exactly. So I'll be reading from Mark chapter five, verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter. And then I'll pray, and then we can go through the text together and understand what God's word says, okay? Mark chapter five, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered... He said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as the deer pants for the water, so our soul, Lord, longs for you. We say, Lord, that you are our only good, that you alone are what we want, that you are our highest desire. And we also confess, Father, that so often our desires are for other things. We're distracted, we wander, we get bogged down with the things of the day, and we forget, Lord, that you are our satisfaction, that you are our true food, you are our true drink. Lord, forgive us and help us, Lord, to hear the word that you have for us tonight. Help us to see our Lord, our Savior, our King, for he is what we need. He is who we need, Lord, above everyone and all else. 
We thank you for all this in our Lord Jesus Christ's name. Help us to pay attention, Lord. It's in Christ. Amen. So if you have not printed your notes yet or pulled up your notes yet, let me send them to you really quick if I can find them. Here are the notes. <clears throat> and I didn't put the key idea in your notes because I forgot. But the key idea for tonight is that the Lord Jesus heals and saves by faith alone. We must trust in him. The key idea is that the Lord Jesus heals and saves by faith alone. We must trust in him. So I have a question for you. When's the last time that you were desperate? I'm talking you want something so bad you'll do almost anything to get it. You'll work, you'll whine, pout and plead, clamor and cry, because without this one thing, your life is nothing. When we're little children, it's often something kind of trivial, right? A special treat, like a candy, or maybe a big Christmas gift, or even a trip to Disneyland. When we get a little bit older, it's often something more substantial. Um, we want attention, or we want our way, or we want to stay up later, or we want a phone, or we want a game, or we want more screen time. But many times, our desperation actually goes a lot deeper than just mere circumstances. We're desperate to be loved and affirmed and noticed. We're desperate for healing, for protection, for comfort. We're desperate to know that God is in control, that we matter to him, that there are answers to the questions that we have. We're desperate for truth to stand firm. We're hungry for spiritual food. We're thirsty for spiritual drink. When I think about being desperate, I think about that one time in college where I hurt my wallet and I needed money to catch the, the train. So I literally begged a homeless man if I could have the money out of his uh, guitar case. Or I think of another time in college where I had one week to find a new place to live. Um, not a great plan, don't do that. Or I think of a couple years ago when I was looking for a church that would take me on as a pastoral intern, but I only knew of one church. What are you desperate for? What do you want more than anything? What does your heart beat faster for? Well, what sends your emotions on this giant roller coaster if you get it or if you don't get it? What one thing must you have at all costs? What thing, if God took it away, you would weep for and say, why, God? Why did you do that to me? In our passage today, we're going to meet a couple of desperate people. And we're going to see how the Lord graciously helps them and meets their need. It picks up right after Jesus lands on the other side of the sea, after healing the demoniac. Right? So Jesus has, Jesus has had a very busy uh, few days of ministry. First, we'll see the desperate father the desperate father, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he implored. That means he urged him, he begged him saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, just earlier in chapter five, we saw someone else, another man, run to Jesus, fall at his feet, and beg him earnestly. That man was the demoniac. Now, there's a connection here. Both the demoniac and Jairus are desperate. They're desperate. The demoniac, he's the scum of society, right? He's, he's unwanted, he's unclean, he's unloved, he's undesirable. But Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. 
to put it in our terms, that's kind of like uh, Pastor Kelly, right? One of the, the late elders at Lighthouse. He's a pastor. He's not formally paid to do the work of the ministry, but people respect him. People love him. People revere him. He's really important, right, in the society. Rulers of the synagogue were mature, godly men in the Jewish community. That's who this man is. That's who Jairus is. But this respectable man gets on his knees and he begs Jesus. The book of Luke says that this daughter that was dying was his only daughter. I mean, listen to his distress, listen to his desperation, right? He says, my little daughter, my precious daughter is at the point of death. The phrase at the point of death, it doesn't mean that she's like, you know, kind of sick and she's fighting for her life. It means that the doctors have done everything they can and they've given up. They declared no chance for recovery. For us, that would be like off the ventilator, off oxygen, off the feeding tube. She's at the very doorstep of death. There's no more hope. At any moment, she could slip from life into eternity. And so desperate, Jairus comes to Jesus. Look at verse 24. And he, Jesus, went with him. Now let's say we stop the story right there, right? Let's pretend you don't know what happens with the story. What do you think is supposed to happen, right? I mean, so far in the book of Mark, right, we've seen Jesus heal the man with the demon. He's cleansed the leper. He's healed the man who couldn't walk. He's forgiven the sins with just, with just the word. He's healed a man's withered hand, and he's cast out a whole legion of demons. So what would you expect, right? I would expect, you know, Jesus shows up at Jairus' daughter's house. He's like, okay, make a time. He, like, puts his hand on her head, and then, bam, she's up and she's ready. She's fine, right? Jesus, again, saves the day. But that's not what happens. As Jesus goes, continuing in verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. But all of a sudden, the camera shifts angles and zooms in, not on Jesus, not on Jairus, but on an unnamed woman. So now let's look at the bleeding daughter healed. I want us to see four things about this woman. First, see her suffering, her suffering. Verse 25 says this. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, we don't know this woman's name, but we do know her suffering. She'd been constantly bleeding as long as some of you have been alive. Her body would have been absolutely crippled by her blood loss. She had sought help from many doctors, probably specialists, spending all of her money, but it hadn't helped at all. Her treatments had only made things worse, and she was still in torment, dead broke, and really without any hope. In addition to her physical suffering was her spiritual and social suffering. Just like demoniac was unclean, just like the leper was unclean, so too this woman was unclean because of her bleeding. She couldn't enter the temple to worship God. She couldn't hang out with her friends. She couldn't live a normal life in society. She was cut off from the people of God. Now, I couldn't think of a not gross illustration, so here comes a throw-up story. Um, it's not real. But imagine if you had a really weak stomach, like just really bad digestion problems. And then every day, and I mean every day, you are prone to almost instantaneously, to instantaneously uncontrollably projectile vomit or go number two every day of your life. Some days you make it to the bathroom. Other days, like Harrison, you don't. Your classmates wouldn't want to sit next to you, right? They wouldn't want to sit next to you. You might puke on all their stuff. And 
they will never forget the time you went on a field trip with them and had diarrhea on the bus with no bathroom. Your body would be perpetually weak because your body can't hold on to the nutrients, right? You'd lose all your liquids and all your, all your food. You'd be frail and half starved. Of course, you've gone to the doctors. Your parents have done everything you want that, that they uh, wish to. You have no medication that works. You don't know what to do. You're desperate. Your whole life, your whole 12 years, you've lived in this way. Can you imagine? This is the bleeding woman's world. For 12 years, she suffered from the same sickness, the same chronic death. And every year it's gotten worse. What kind of questions would you have? What kind of prayers would you pray? Second, I want you to see her faith. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard that this preacher, this miracle worker, made the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. He touched the lepers and he made them clean. He cast out demons with merely a word. He was merciful to the weak and to the broken. I mean, how would you feel if you heard something like that? You, do, you feel hope, right? You feel like, wow, this man can actually help me. He's the only one in the whole world that can do something for me. I mean, this is what the woman thought to herself. In verse 28, she says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made clean. She had such a high view of God's power, of Christ's power, that she didn't think she needed to get his attention or something like that. She said, all I need to do is touch his clothes. That's it. His clothes are enough for me. And that's why in verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. Now third, look at her healing. Verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I mean, it was like that. One touch, instantly healed. No like progression, no like medicine, just bam, perfect. I mean, 12 years of torment, gone, immediately. But the story's not over. Like, look at verse 30, look what Jesus does. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? A few years ago, I had the joy of going to Israel um, with some of my, my friends from my old church. And we saw lots of sites uh, where the events in the New Testament took place, like Capernaum, like the Sea of Galilee, et cetera, et cetera. The most touristy thing we did was we went to the old part of the city of Jerusalem. It was awesome. It was, it was awesome. You should totally go if you get a chance. Um, there's shawarma and sweet shops everywhere and gift shops everywhere. And all these like, you know, like the ram's horn, they're called shofars. You could buy a shofar, like, I don't know what you do with it, but you could. Um, there's even this McDonald's, a special Israel McDonald's that served a big America burger. It was like as big as my face. That's what they think of Americans apparently. Anything, anyways, uh, one thing I'll never forget was getting stuck in a rush hour. Not in a car, but while walking. Right? We're in an outdoor market, kind of think of like a permanent farmer's market of sorts. When all of a sudden, hundreds of people, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of people came out from every alley. And in two minutes, we were stuck like sardines, like not able to take a step forward or a step backwards. Shoulder to shoulder doesn't even begin to describe it. It's probably better like my nose at the back of someone else's head. That's how close we were. I could smell the humanity. I could feel the breath of the guy behind me on my neck, which is, which is gross. I mean, a local, which I saw next to me, a complete stranger, was resting his head on the back of my friend's neck. Like, how do you, well, why, why do you do that? <laughs> we were stuck like that for 20 minutes. Not able to move forward or back. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy, right? That's the sort of crowding around Jesus 
that I imagine was happening right here. Remember, Jesus is the most famous person in their entire lifetimes. People wanted to be near him, ask him questions, see his face, hear his voice, receive his blessing. I mean, sure, like his, his, you know, his 12 disciples are probably somewhat close around him, but there are probably dozens, probably hundreds of people mobbing him, pressing against him, crowding around him. So now you can see the disciples' disbelief when Jesus suddenly stops, turns around and says, who touched my clothes? They'd, they'd be like, who touched you? Everyone's touching you. Like, don't you feel us all bumping into you? Like, we're this big mass of people. Why does it matter who touched you? Jairus' daughter is dying. Don't you care about that? Let's, let's go. Stop delaying. But Jesus doesn't answer them. And instead, in verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Now, the woman, of course, had not intended in any way to make a big scene like this. She just wanted to be healed and then kind of mosey her way on off. But Jesus had other plans. He knew someone had been healed and he wanted to know who it was. Look at verse, uh, the fourth thing I want you to see about her was her confession. Look at verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. For an unclean person like her to touch Jesus was to make him unclean. That's a violation of the Mosaic law. It's a scandal. That's worse than someone knowingly having COVID and then coughing straight into your mouth. That's how much of a violation it was of personal cleanliness. But when she was touched by Jesus, when Jesus was touched by her, Jesus did not become unclean. His cleanness invaded her uncleanness. His blessedness eliminated her bleeding. His holiness made her whole. And the woman confessed everything, the whole truth, the bleeding, the shame, the doctors, the poverty, the torment, the suffering, the hope, the touch, the healing. And for 12 years, she probably had no friends being completely cut off. So what would this great rabbi, this great teacher say to someone like her? Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, the sentence is really important, so let's slow down. Right? First thing he says is daughter. This is the only woman in all of the Gospels that Jesus ever calls daughter. Why does, why does he do that? Because she's afraid. She's full of fear and trembling. Right? When he calls her daughter, he's saying, we're family. I am for you. It's a, it's a gentle love. Our Savior speaks with a gentle love. He doesn't rebuke a desperate sinner. He welcomes her. He treats her like she's his own. He's not cold and calloused. And if you belong to him, he treats you as his own. He welcomes you with the kindness of a father, the sweetness of a mother. This is how great our Savior's love is for us. Then Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Now, this is really important, so we'll slow down again. Jesus does not mean that the faith was the source of power. Power, remember, went out from Jesus, meaning that Jesus is the source of power. He's the one that has power to make her well. So what does it mean when Jesus says, your faith has made you well? He means this. Faith is the tool or the means, okay? It's the tool or the means by which she receives the healing. Think of it this way. Her faith is kind of like the straw that brings the liquid to your mouth, right? The straw is just a tool. Yeah, you need the straw, but the straw is just a tool. Um, 
for more extended illustration, listen to this. Um, let's say you're hiking, okay? Um, you're hiking around with your family and you get a little bit too close to the edge and all of a sudden you fall off the cliff. Thankfully, there's a branch. And so you land on the branch like 10 feet down and you're fine. But goodness gracious, like there's no way to get up and there's no way to get down, okay? You're, you're stuck on the cliff. Now your dad is there and your dad just happens to have this very, very special rope that he throws down to you and he uses it to pull you back up to safety. So you're fine. After recovering from this near-death experience, what would you say? You'd say, my dad saved me, right? It was awesome. He pulled me up with the rope and I'm fine. Thank you, dad. And that'd be true. He's the power or the source of your salvation. But you could also say, the rope saved me, right? Now, the rope doesn't have any power, right? You're not gonna thank the rope and hug the rope. But the rope was the tool your dad used to save you, right? Without your dad, definitely no salvation. But without the rope, salvation could not reach you. In a, similar, in a similar way, faith is the means by which the woman receives the healing. If she didn't believe Christ could truly heal her, touching him would have meant nothing. I mean, it's not like Jesus is a magic talisman that you just, I don't know, you rub and you get some magical power, right? Remember, a lot of people were bumping into Jesus. They didn't get a magic power boost every time they did that, right? Only the woman was healed because she had faith. Now we ask, what about you? Do you believe, that is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that he's the savior, the substitute, the Lord, the king? Remember, believing that Jesus is just a real person, that's not enough. That's not really faith. Believing stories about Jesus that you learned in children's ministry or junior high or on Sunday, that's not enough. That's not real faith. Even believing things about Jesus that are true, like, oh, Jesus is the son of God or Jesus is the savior of the world. That's not enough to really qualify as true faith. Biblical faith is not believing stuff. Biblical faith is believing Christ. It is looking at what God says in his word about himself, looking at what he's done in the past and seeing him, his character, his goodness, his truth. Faith means I'm sure about you, God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, when I have faith, I can say, I'm sure that what God has promised is true. I'm convinced that what God has said is trustworthy. Even though I doubt myself, even though I'm full of failing, I know that God is sure and he will never fail me. So again, do you believe Jesus? Do you truly have faith in Jesus? Do you really trust him? Or to say another way, do you put all your confidence in him for eternity and for this life? This is what it means to have true saving faith. Another way to say it is that God is the power of salvation. Faith is the means of receiving that salvation. Faith is like the rope that God uses to draw us up. Faith is the aqueduct that brings the waters of the fountain of grace to our mouths, right? We don't go and hug the rope. We don't go and hug the aqueduct. We give thanks to God, but we need faith or else we cannot receive the gift that he wants to give. The woman has faith and Jesus healed her. And now he says to her, go in peace. This is an ancient Hebrew way of basically saying like, may God bless you and goodbye. Right? It's, a, it's a way of saying, may you be well and whole. 
And then he says, then Jesus says, be healed of your disease. 12 years of suffering, gone. She came to Christ to be revealed of her affliction, but he didn't just heal her body. He healed her soul. He healed her social standing. He healed her relationship with God. Jesus came to give life abundantly, like a fountain, overflowing, full of grace, and he makes us whole. So let me ask you, when you became a Christian, I'm not talking about like a specific day, but just when you know, okay, I was not a Christian this time, and now I am a Christian. Is that your experience? When you came to Christ, did you come desperate and needy and and wanting? And did he answer you? Did he answer you with love and blessing with peace? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven by our Father of your sins? Not just some generic people out there that, oh, Jesus died for them, but Jesus died for me because he's my Savior. King David writes of his experience with the Lord in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust. That is their faith, their confidence, their reliance, put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. This is the kind of faith that God desires. This is the kind of faith that God demands. This is the kind of faith that God uses to save us. Last week, I spent a lot of time talking about how sin really just does horrific things to us, right? I said sin deceives, sin enslaves, sin isolates, sin torments, sin destroys. I used an illustration of like someone fishing, right? You have the hook, you put temptation on it, and once the fish bites, it's dead. That's what sin does to us. But the worst thing that sin does to us is that it takes us away from God. It takes us away from God. I want to share one of my favorite verses with you. Um, It's Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says this. It says, God is speaking. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. That means they left me. They abandoned me. The fountain of living waters to hew, to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God says two evils. First evil is that when we sin, we abandon God. We turn away from God. We leave the fountain of living waters. That's insanity, right? But then secondly, we turn to something that can never satisfy. We turn to dig what, what God calls these broken cisterns that can hold no water. God himself is the source of life. He's the creator of all things good, and every good thing therefore comes through him. There's nothing that we could ever need apart from God. He's the overflowing stream of blessing and joy and peace. He's the source of living water for us. If you drink of God, you'll never thirst again. If you drink of God, you'll drink from the fountain of light and life and love. The reason God created us is to be satisfied wholly in him. Yet when we turn away from him, we always do it because we want to satisfy our thirst in something else. These broken cisterns were actually these real, imagine these big holes in the ground. And these holes were dug in the rock in order to collect rainwater during the rainy season. Now, that water would be used for like watering the animals and watering crops and obviously for cooking and everything else that we need water for. But because it was built on the rock, the rocks would sometimes shift and crack. And when it happened, all the water drained out, 
Just like when you pull the plug on a big pool or a bathtub, all the water goes away. But in these cisterns at the bottom will be scum, will be the festering filth of swamp and death. Maybe an animal would fall in there and die. In life, we're always presented with only two options. Only two options to satisfy our spiritual thirst. Two options to run to for hope and assurance. Two options in which to place our faith. It's either God, the fountain of living water, or sin, the sludge at the bottom of the cistern. When we put our hope, our faith, our trust, our reliance, our joy, our satisfaction in anything or anyone other than God, in our insanity, that means we're choosing to drink sludge. You can't satisfy your thirst by drinking poison. And we do this in dozens of different ways throughout the day. Let me just give you some examples. Many times today, we trust in the recommendations of COVID-19 experts to stay safe, rather than in God, who still is king over the coronavirus. We run to distraction like movies and video games and food and sports, whatever, to drown out the troubles of our day, instead of looking to God, whom we can cast all our anxieties upon because he cares for us. We trust in our plans or our studying or our efforts rather than God who gives generously to his people. We worry about everything instead of looking to God who holds us lovingly in his hands. We look to other people to affirm us, to compliment us, to love us, to care for us, instead of resting in the supreme care of God our Father. We turn to self-help and self-care videos on YouTube for counsel instead of God and his perfect trustworthy word. Take it from a sinner who's walked that path to death. Remember, sin always lies. It will never satisfy. In it, there is no hope. This bleeding woman was desperate because she tried it all. She tried to find a savior apart from Christ. Physicians, medications, the best that money could buy. But he was hopeless. And her decision to come, notice, it wasn't to come to Christ and touch his clothes, it wasn't really the most informed, right? It's not like she made this elaborate theological profession before coming to him. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. In you is life and hope and peace. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, because you alone are full of mercy and strength. She didn't come with that kind of faith, but she did come. She came with the true faith, a desperate faith. And in mercy, God took that baby faith and he honored her baby faith and he healed her body. And he healed her soul. God welcomes the weak. And he welcomes all of weak to come to him, even if we come tripping and falling in his direction. Isaiah 55 says this, everyone who thirsts, this is God speaking, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come and buy. Come, buy wine and milk, buy without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. This is the daughter of God that was saved by her faith. Next, I want to look at the dead daughter who was resurrected. In our passage, the story's not over, right? We go to verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This is a really cruel message, right? I mean, your daughter's dead. It's over. No more hope. Give up. She's gone forever. Never again will she smile and laugh and speak. Never again will you give her a hug. She's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
If I was the father, I'd be in shock. I'd found Jesus, but it was too late. It was over. I'd failed. But verse 36 says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, this is a really strange thing to say, to be honest. Um, it's not a word of comfort. Like if someone that I loved just died, I would not want someone to say that to me. But Jesus says it. Why? It's because he's giving them a hope beyond any earthly hope. He's saying your daughter is dead, but don't fear. Only believe. Believe, believe, believe who? Believe what? Believe, believe how, right? But remember, Jairus was there when the woman come down and bowed before Jesus and confessed the whole truth. He had heard her story. He'd seen her suffering. And you know, he knew of her healing. So when he hears, and he heard Jesus say, daughter, your faith has healed you. So when Jesus tells him, do not fear, only believe, the model of faith is literally right in front of him. The woman is Jairus' example of faith. Christ is saying, believe in me as your only hope, just like she does. Are you desperate like her? Believe in me. Believe that I do miracles. Believe that I have power and that I use it mercifully. I heal this daughter of mine, and I'll come and heal your daughter too. Verse 37, he did not allow anyone to follow him except Jesus, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Those people crying, they were basically professional mourners that you would hire to cry about the death of a loved one. That sounds weird in our culture. We don't do that. But in the Jewish culture and Middle Eastern cultures, actually, it's pretty common during that time. So basically, they all know that the, that the daughter is dead. Verse 39, when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The daughter is not dead. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. I mean, to them, obviously, the daughter was dead. There's no hope. Well, why, why is Jesus being crazy to speak like this? But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is an Aramaic phrase, and it translates to, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, at this moment, all the Jews have been freaking out, right? To touch a dead body was, again, to become unclean. Not a good thing in that culture. So as his hand reaches down to hers, a collective gasp and silence in the room. Then holding her cold hand, he says, little girl, get out. It's almost equivalent to what your dad might say to you on a lazy Saturday morning. Honey, it's time for breakfast. Sweetheart, rise and shine. It's not a magical spell. It's a simple greeting. For Jesus, raising the dead is no more difficult than a father rousing his daughter from sleep. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, like some of you, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Remember the bleeding woman had been sick for 12 years. This little girl was 12 years old. The woman was healed immediately and received new life because she came to Jesus through faith. The little girl received resurrected life and got up immediately and began walking around because of faith. Their stories are intimately connected. Verse 43. Jesus charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. It's not time for Jesus to be publicly known yet. And he shows compassion to the daughter and says, get her something to eat. She's really alive. She needs her food. Now, let's think about this. 
Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. But he doesn't explain his plans. He doesn't say, hey, you know, don't worry, I'm going to raise her from the dead. No problem. Why, why, why doesn't he do that? It's because more important than Jairus' daughter is actually Jairus' understanding of Jesus. Christ is the one who's trustworthy. He can be believed. Faith is more than, faith is more than what you believe. It actually is who you believe. Faith is more than what you believe. It's who you believe. Christ is the son of God with power to extend mercy. He's the God who vanquishes death and resurrects the dead to life. He's the one who does the impossible by the will of God. So for you, where do you struggle to trust Christ? What nagging fear? What thing is birthed from unbelief that plagues your soul? Uh, people raising their hands. You guys okay? You good? All right, let's keep going. So in the sermon, oh, am I frozen? Um, I don't know. Your I think your camera was on, but it was black, so I don't know. Can you see me now? I can see you. Okay. Oh, should I pin myself too? Sorry. Better? Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So, uh, section four, through faith. Right. So, we've talked a lot about faith today. Um, the woman has to believe. Jairus believes. But now I want to get more practical and help us see, okay, what does faith do? Right. When we believe, what does that actually look like in our lives? So, first... Through faith, we see our helplessness. Jairus had no power to save his daughter. The woman had no power to heal her bleeding. Through faith, they saw their helpless state. And through faith, we see our helplessness too. We're not just helpless to save ourselves from sin. We're also helpless to even see our sin. We're helpless to fight our sin. We're powerless against its lies. We need God's help even to believe that we need saving. I'm lagging a lot, huh? Mm, is that better if I turn off my camera? Can you guys hear me? Oh, Zoom. Okay. It's fine for me. Yeah, I can hear you now, but you were lagging for a little bit. All right. Well, I'm just going to finish the sermon. We're almost done. So I'll just do audio. That's okay. You can just imagine me, I don't know, standing. <laughs> All right, cool. Second, through faith, we believe Christ's power. Jairus and the woman both heard of Christ's wonderful deeds. They heard of the stories and believed that Christ was able. Same with us. Through faith, we read the Bible and we hear God's wonderful deeds. We read that he created the world and everything in it. In six days, we read that Christ became man, that he lived among us, that he died, and he rose again from the dead. Through faith, we believe the word more than we believe even ourselves. And three, four, and five, they all go together. We come to Christ. We revere Christ. We beg Christ all through faith. Jairus and the woman did all these things. They came, they bowed to their mighty savior and they begged him to have mercy on them. That's what we need to do as well. For help in our most desperate need, for strength, even in the mundane, for joy in the midst of trials, we need to go to Jesus. Number six, we confess through faith. Remember the woman said the whole truth, right? Through faith, we also need to understand that Christ wants to hear us. He wants us to tell us all our sin, our fears, and our sufferings. Seventh, we're saved and we're whole. The woman was healed because of her faith. And, the, and Jesus said to her, go in peace. Right. 
For us, we're saved by faith. I mean, I'm sure many of you know Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We're saved through faith. And salvation is actually the experience of living a blessed life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. Now, that doesn't mean a life without suffering. But it does mean a life of joy that overwhelms the suffering because we have a God that reigns. And therefore, we have a hope that never fades. And lastly, by faith, through faith, we're amazed. Everyone that saw the girl raised marveled at Jesus. And we too, through faith, are amazed. We see that God has continued to work in the world. He has not abandoned us, but through all the means of the church, preaching, the prayers of people who love you, the ministry of the church, personal Bible reading, through the things you learn at school, even friends that show you God, these circumstances of life, they remind us that God is present, that he's working for us and for our good. This is what faith accomplishes. And as Mark says so often, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you're desperate, come to Christ. He's the only source that satisfies. He's what our souls really need. You can trust him. All you're searching for something or someone or I don't know what to satisfy the emptiness of your soul can end because we have him. We find hope, joy, our love, our life in Christ. He is our all in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even now you're sovereign over internet and Zoom. And I thank you, Lord, for this, these, these youth who have been so patient, um, not only today, Lord, but this whole year. Um, Lord, I'm tired of Zoom. I'm tired of not being able to see people in person. I'm tired of having to love from a distance. But we trust you. We confess that you, Lord, are worth trusting not only for salvation, but for everything, even internet lagging and computers and technology problems. Lord, I do pray that you show us our real need is you. Our real need, Lord, is to know you, not just know things about you, not just know some good Bible facts or good Bible stories, but Lord, to know you as our God and our Savior. I thank you so much for this time, Lord. And Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to remember even one thing, even one truth. And for that, Lord, we'll give thanks. Thank you so much for this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> thanks so much.